Hey, it's Alan Carter. Here's what's on the podcast for today. Just because you have a controversial opinion doesn't mean it's right, or you should actually say it out loud, Senator. Plus, reason to celebrate, plus reason to be concerned about social media. And how come we have to have a campaign to put science first? Let's get to it. Hi there. Hi, how are you? How you doing? Hey, happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, one year today, since the first case of COVID-19 showed up in the province of Ontario. You know, the traditional gift for the first year is paper. That's your traditional one-year anniversary gift. And I'm thinking, in terms of paper, for COVID-19, divorce papers might be appropriate. Now, before we look back at what we have learned what kind of knowledge we have gained over the past year. Happy Mother Number 11 Monday. Whoa, baby, look at those numbers. 24 hours, in the last 24 hours, 1,958 COVID cases. I tell you all the time, don't get too wrapped up in the numbers, but that's some good news there because we continue to look like we are flattening the curve. Although although only 36,000 tests, not a lot of testing in the last 24 hours. But nevertheless, what it shows us is if you take where we've had the rolling seven-day average over the last three, four days, the curve is flattening. And it means now a month out from Christmas. We're just shy of a month of the lockdown actually coming into place. Remember, it went into place on Boxing Day, and what it shows is that the lockdown works. Science! Who knew that science would get us out of this? Not hyperbole, not shouting, Not getting your chest all puffed up and trying to guess and trying to blame. That's not what works. You know what works? Science. Science! So that is some good news. It's early days yet. It's not time to celebrate yet. We're not, you know, there's no reason to, you know, start passing out pieces of cheesecake to everybody. We're not there yet. We're not there yet, Doug. Just keep the cheesecake to yourself. But what it does show is that since that lockdown went into place, we have begun to appear like we are flattening the curve. So that is some great news. Some good news. Also, we have good news from Moderna this morning. Uh, Moderna tweeting out this morning, quote, We just announced that the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine retains neutralizing activity against emerging variants first identified in the U.K. and the Republic of South Africa. That a tweet from Moderna, who also put out some information to back that up. Uh, And the takeaway from the science world is that is some great news, because obviously there's a lot of concern about these emerging uh, variants. However, it's not all good news, because this from Eric Figelding, who is an epidemiologist in the United States, formerly with Harvard, tweeting out that it was good and bad news for Moderna. Uh, The Moderna vaccine, which, keep in mind, that is um, approved here in Canada, it will fully protect against the U.K. variant, that is B117, 
but it was six times less efficient at neutralizing the South African variant, for those of you keeping score at home. That's B1351. Bingo! Uh, Moderna is now testing a newly synthesized booster for it, and guess what that means? That means potentially a third shot. So we may be in a kind of situation later on this year where we're not just getting two shots to make sure we have full immunity, but maybe a third booster shot to ensure that these new emerging variants are also part of the protection. And obviously that that's real concern because we're having trouble getting the vaccine that we need now. If we need three shots, that's just going to complicate things even more. And it's the whole vaccine rollout in this province, which is going to be the feature topic today, featured topic today on the DOFO show, the return of the DOFO show at one o'clock. It's regularly scheduled time. Doug Ford will be talking about Ontario's rollout of the vaccine. And of course, we've had to change our rollout plans because we just don't have any. We're just not getting uh, as much as we had hoped. So that uh, those details were announced in a technical briefing this morning. Those details have now been released. And as a result of the Pfizer vaccine delay, this is from Canadian Press, Ontario officials say they are now prioritizing a long-term care, high-risk retirement, elder care residents to get them the dose by February 5th, but not staff or caregivers. Now, you remember before when we first started handing out the vaccine, it went to those caregivers first. But now we're going to try and get into the homes instead and get it right into the arms of the most vulnerable. The government also says it will reallocate vaccines to ensure that the 14 public health units that have not received any vaccine can begin to vaccinate their vulnerable populations beginning this week. And at the DOFO show today, what can we expect? I'm going to call for another firecracker, I think. Another firecracker up the yin-yang. I think this is where we're going to go. We're going to get another angry tirade from Doug Ford about how he doesn't believe that Pfizer is doing us right. They're doing us wrong. Pfizer is doing us wrong. Uh, and, of course, all of his bluster last week, and in terms of, you know, he called the head of Pfizer Canada. I don't know if he threatened to put that firecracker in that particular spot, but none of it has resulted in any more doses for the province of Ontario or for the country of Canada, for that matter. So here we are, one year. We are one year in, and so much has changed. Think back to a year from now, a year ago, when maybe you just started to hear about this, and, you know, there was press conferences like, don't worry about it, it's all good, don't worry about it. Here we are all squished together at this press conference, seven of us telling you it's not a big deal, you don't have a chance of getting it, it's all fine, everybody relax, you don't need a mask, mask's just going to give you a false sense of security. Oh, whoops, it's a pandemic! Our habits and our expectations have changed. Remember when it was first a pandemic and we're like six weeks, 10, 14 on the outside. And here we are a year later because time is elastic. And so is our patience. But of course, our patience, as that elastic begins to pull tighter and tighter, it is beginning to thin and to fray. And the federal conservatives are now beginning to pin their election hopes on our patients wearing so thin, especially with the vaccine and the rollout, that the conservatives hope that they will be able to ride that thin patients right into power. Here's Aaron O'Toole. 
The health and prosperity of Canadians is at stake. The bottom line is that we need vaccines to secure our future, rebuild our economy, and get Canadians back to work. That's what Conservatives will continue to stand up for. Canadians deserve leadership and a plan, and that is what we will provide. That is Aaron O'Toole in a release in advance of the return of Parliament today, and there will be questions, of course, about the vaccine rollout. And the Liberals, it's widely expected that we will go to an election perhaps in the spring, and the Liberals are really staking everything on the other side, that there will be enough vaccine, that these temporary hiccups will be just precisely that. I, at this point, I don't know if you're like me, I have a hard time getting too wound up right now, firecracker up the yin-yang, of because of the delays in the vaccine rollout right now. I just widely expected that when we did get the vaccines approved, the first couple of ones were approved, there were going to be supply chain issues all around the world. I just have always sort of baked that into my expectations. And I am not willing at this point, I am not willing at this point to cast any blame on the federal government for its procurement efforts. Because, frankly, we're just too early. You may recall last year, late last year, there was all talk about Canada to the back of the line, blah, 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 and the Conservatives were making hay about that. And then it turns out, well, no, we had secured all of these different contracts, and then there was such you know, joy and euphoria over the first two vaccines being approved. And so the pendulum kind of goes back and forth, and I don't know where it's going to end up yet. So I think we're really early days in terms of figuring out whether or not we should be blaming the federal government for the vaccine procurement. I had a whole bit written about here about Julie Payette and about Justin Trudeau and his, can we get a vaccine for him and for his self-important, my motives are pure, leap before you look governing style, like, you know, oh, well, here's, here's what I'm thinking. These socks would look great with an astronaut as GG instead of actually doing the due diligence. But I got to tell you about Lynn Bayak, the senator. Uh, the senator has just now confirmed in the last hour that she is stepping down from the Senate. Controversial uh, senator uh, who said in her statement as she announced her retirement, keep in mind, uh, she had been suspended from the Senate. There was a motion on the floor to have her actually expo- uh, uh, sorry, uh, thrown out of the Senate altogether. She had been appointed by Stephen Harper eight years ago, and part of her statement, quote, Some have criticized me for stating that the good as well as the bad of residential schools should be recognized. I stand by that statement. Others have criticized me for stating that the Truth and Reconciliation Report was not as balanced as it should be. I stand by that statement as well, Bayek said in the statement that they released. And you you may know some of the background, uh, very controversial things that the senator has said uh, about residential schools. And it just, this just jumped out of me. I just want to, I just really want to weigh in on one aspect of this, is that the senator here, soon to be former senator, is, is attempting to portray herself as courageous somehow for saying these things. And it doesn't make you courageous to have a wrong opinion. That doesn't... I remember recently, a couple years ago, I was at a a Christmas party, and 
uh, a, a friend of the family came in and said, this is a really unpopular opinion. This is a very unpopular opinion. And then proceeded to just launch into just a screed against, uh, against indigenous Canadians. And I thought to myself, you know, that's not brave or controversial. It's just racist. It's just racist. And it doesn't make you some kind of maverick to have a racist opinion. You know what it makes you? A racist. And that's it. That's the end of it. You don't get a gold star for, you know, going counterculture. Ooh, I'm carving out my own path over here in Racism Alley. You don't get a award for that. <laughs> so, ooh, boy, that's courageous. It is not courageous to suggest that there was good as well as bad from residential schools. Like, what is that? That is, that is Mussolini made the trains run on time kind of stuff is what that is. Doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make you courageous to have that kind of opinion. How often are you on social media? Are you concerned about the time that you spend on social media and what you encounter there? I'm a big user of Twitter. I use it all the time. It's part, it's part of my uh, working day. Uh, by the way, if you want to get in touch with me on Twitter, my DMs are open at a Carter Global, and sometimes that doesn't work out so well for me because some people have strong opinions and don't always say very nice things. That's part of being on social media, and increasingly it's becoming more and more toxic. I have it easy. You know, as a middle-aged white guy, I got it easy, and I, I realize this. I mean, my, my female colleagues here at Global News have a much, much different experience from being online and interacting with people online. And journalists of color have it even worse on top of that. And if you have a woman of color, you know, it just, the abuse is just exponential compared to what I get. The online sphere is increasingly toxic, and the center is being pushed out. The center is being pushed out by the loudest voices on both left and right. And centrist politics and centrist ideas, as they're represented on social media, are under attack all around the world. A new survey conducted by the Canadian Race Relations Foundation has found that 78% of Canadians are concerned about the spread of hate speech online. What's your experience been online? Are you thinking about pulling back? Do you engage at all on social media? Are you concerned about it? Mohammed Hashem is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. Welcome to the program. Fascinating study. I'm wondering what jumped out at you from the study. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate that. There's a lot that jumps out uh, on this one. One is, you know, there used to be where people used to say, just don't read the comments and articles, because that's where all the the, the terrible stuff existed. But now we we see that it, it not only exists just in in your mainstream, your news feeds uh, that you receive, but we're, we're we're starting to gain an expectation for it to to be there. And it's not as shocking as it used to be. Um, and it's just because it's just so commonplace. And I think that, you know, when we talk about social media companies and when they say, you know, this, that social media companies uh, say that, you know, the town square, uh, they equate the social media environment to the town square saying that it's, it's an equal place of opportunity for everyone to be engaged in. 
yet that is not the case. You're absolutely right, where the loudest and the hardest and the harshest voices uh, dominate the most because that's what people click on. And that's what social media companies want. It was really interesting as you look at this breakdown, and by the way, this uh, is available online if you want to read this um, this survey. I, I found it interesting as you looked at uh, Canadian media and social media use. Like Google is up way up there uh, as in terms of the, the daily usage, and, and Twitter is quite a ways down. But what you do see here, and I thought this was interesting, news on television uh, still comes in as second in terms of Canadian media uh, usage, I guess, as a as a news anchor, as a traditional linear television news anchor, I feel pretty good about that. Uh, my kid knows who you are, Alan. <laughs> as, as well as uh, as well as Storm the Weather Dog. <laughs> I was I was walking my son. And Farah are, are, I was walking are, are my son today. In our house. I was walking my son today, and he's twelve, and he said, "Dad, nobody over, you know, no, no young people know who you are. Nobody, nobody young knows who you are because, of course, I, I work in a medium that's not being used very much by youth. And part of what you found is that the exposure to hate and to racism and misogyny impacts young people, people much more than older people. Well, when you look at that, you know, people who've seen incitement to violence, sexual harassment, racist comments, hate online, and every single category that we that we saw, um, people who are the, between the ages of 18 to 29 are significantly higher exposed to all those uh, than people of any other demographic. And it's at least 10 to 15 percent more so. On average, 70 to 75 percent of uh, respondents between the 18 and 29 are saying that they're witnessing that stuff online. And you're right, I think that's probably because they're not watching your your, uh, your show. Uh, however, and that they are spending more time on social media, but that but that also goes to the fact that they are more aware of what's what the what hate actually means and they're more they're they're, they're just more perceptive to be able to and sensitive to it. So they're they're, they're they can feel it more and they're online more. And that's where the future is going. And I think we all know that, that people are spending far more time online than they are in other uh, forms of information gathering. And this is where uh, governments need to step in and, and do something about it. I'm speaking with Mohammed Hashim, who is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. You also found a strong appetite amongst Canadians for some kind of government oversight and action by these social media companies. Oh, absolutely. There's in every in every category that we we tested from whether or not social media companies need to take down posts within 24 hours, or whether there should be individual uh, responsibility held on those uh, spreading hate online. And almost every single category that we tested, uh, over 70% of people, uh, sometimes even 80% of people, uh, either like, strongly support or support. And only a small fraction of people oppose or, or strongly oppose, maybe between 15 to 20 percent. But overwhelmingly, in almost every category that we tested, people want to see strong legislative action to be able to control some of the hate um, and divisiveness that's happening online. What I find is interesting is because you're talking about legislative changes, perhaps from a government, and there's a lot of concern about you know free speech, and I, I won't you know bring up First Amendment because obviously that doesn't apply to us, but it, you know free speech nevertheless is protected by the charter. But when we had 
uh, Donald Trump removed from uh, all the platforms, there's a significant concern that we're allowing Silicon Valley and a, and a small cabal of billionaires to decide then you know, who is on and who is not on the platform. I'm wondering if the survey you know, sheds any light on how Canadians feel about that or, or your perspective on it. I honestly, I, I don't trust social media to self-regulate. Um, I'll give you a quick example. Two weeks ago, I uh, sent a note to the head of public policy at Facebook saying, here are three uh, groups that I believe to be hateful that should be removed off, uh, like off their platform. And I sent them you know, a number of notes to say, this is why, and this is how they've been hurtful and harmful, and, but also not just hurtful and harmful, but hateful. Um, and that, that's, and you know, so I checked in last week to see if any progress had been made on it, and they had it. And to be frank, I've been for years telling people, um, I, I tell, like, you know, reporting online, going online, and, and hitting the report button, asking for, hoping that somebody's going to read it and say, okay, here, this person makes a point, and we'll take down stuff. In fact, you know, when I uh, about two years ago, there was a uh, there was a person who made a video that said uh, they wanted they were encouraging people to take a hammer to my face. Um, because I was Muslim, and um, and I reported that, and that didn't come down. So I have very little faith in social media to be able to uh, to self-regulate. I think there needs to be an oversight body that creates some level of mechanism to make sure that they are accountable, that there is a set of standards that they need to abide by, and that uh, and that we as a society choose what those standards are, and not social media by themselves. That becomes incredibly, increasingly difficult when, you know, we're a mid-sized power and these companies are based in, you know, in the, in Twitter and those cases in the U.S. or if you're talking TikTok in China. Yeah, I think if you want to be available uh, in Canada, then uh, you have to play by Canadian rules. Canada does not have an unlimited set of free speech. We do have already hate speech laws in practice, in law. Um, and that's because as, as a society, we've agreed to a certain level of uh, civility, to be frank. You know, we want to have the town square be a bit more civil. We want to have better conversations. We don't want speech to be uh, eroding somebody's ability to function in society. Um, and, and, there's, and, and there's a significant amount of concern about that. Even our survey looked at, you know, whether or not you would, um, you would, uh, what is your highest priority? Is it freedom of speech or is it concern um, of uh, having harm towards others? So in preventing preventing harm won out dramatically. And I think it was over 60, 60-70% of the people that said that um, they would choose reducing harm versus protecting free speech. And I think that's, that's a good reflection of who us Canadians are. I think we want to have more civil conversations. I like the fact that we say sorry every five minutes. Um, <laughs> you know, I think it's important for us to be able to have a decent conversation. And I don't, I, I don't care if you're offensive. Um, I just don't want you to be hateful uh, and to be inciting violence. Um, there's definitely thresholds for that legally, and I, I would love to see that applied online as well. Mohammed, great to have you on the program. The survey is really interesting, and it digs into a lot of stuff that I think we need to address, and we need to address soon. I appreciate you being on the program. Thank you for having me.
That is Mohamed Hashim, who is the executive director of the Canadian Race Relations Foundation. And if you Google, if you go on Google like we all do, Canadian Race Relations Foundation, you can find that report online. How much of a problem is misinformation and disinformation about COVID-19? Last week on this program, we had the Ontario Medical Association, which has launched a new initiative to try and clear up some misinformation about the vaccine and deal with things like vaccine hesitancy and answer your questions about how is it possible that we developed a vaccine this quickly and approved it this quickly, and should you maybe just wait for another six months to see if Bob down the street grows a third arm i could use a third arm i'm hoping for the third the third arm is what i'm actually hoping for from the vaccine the answer to that question quite seriously is because we have poured an enormous amount of resources and technology into developing these vaccines and we had a lot more participants and studies we've spent billions on them and that is why we have arrived at a vaccine as quickly as we have and why it has been as approved as quickly as it has. So that's how you deal with the misinformation about the vaccine. But how do you deal with misinformation about COVID itself? Well, there is a new initiative being led by the Canadian Association of Science Centers, COVID-19 Resources Canada, and the Health Law Institute at the University of Alberta. To tell me all about it, I am pleased to welcome to the program Tim Caulfield, who is Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy uh, professor, uh, pardon me, at the University of Alberta. It's a big, long title you got there, Tim. U of A. How about I just say that? Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Alan. All right. What is this initiative all about? This in, uh, initiative is really about tackling misinformation. And as you noted off the top, this is a huge dilemma, an absolutely massive dilemma. Whether you're talking about about vaccines or whether you're talking about COVID more broadly, whether you're talking about masks or people's belief in the val- value of lockdowns and, and even, even about the source of, of the pandemic, there is just in a massive amount of, of misinformation out there, a very chaotic information environment. So this initiative has a very straightforward goal, and that is to spread the good stuff, to mobilize people all across Canada, every Canadian, every Canadian to really become part of the answer in the fight against misinformation. So this is a coalition of scientists, of research, researchers, public health authorities, people like me, you know, policy experts, who are really trying to, to spread the good stuff. Because, Alan, largely this is, no surprise here, research tells us this is a social media phenomenon. So what we want to do is get people on social media, going to uh, our website, going to our platforms to see the good content, which has been vetted by experts, and spreading the word. Have you thought about uh, enlisting the help of Thomas Dolby? I'm thinking Thomas Dolby could help you here. <laughs> That's old school. That's an old school <laughs> reference. I, I, uh, I think we have it. Do we, do we yeah. have it, Loretta? Hit it. <laughs> Uh, of course, that's Magnus Pike, the great Magnus Pike in, in that song. And yeah, I go old school, but is it, you know, do we need that kind of approach to be able to combat, combat misinformation? We do. You know, we do need to blind people with science. And there is evidence to back this up, right? The idea of making sure that the good content is absolutely everywhere. Because people are getting exposed to so much misinformation. 
And and uh, just because of our cognitive biases, the way that we're wired, seeing that misinformation all the time, uh, it may not pull you into a a a, uh, a vortex of conspiracy theories, but it may just instill some doubt, right? And we're def- definitely seeing that in in the context of vaccines. So what you want to do is you want to get good clear information out there. And by the way, there is research. We're doing some of this at the Institute uh, that, that debunking does work. Like this, this strategy does work if it's done well. We're not going to change everyone's mind, but we just want to move the, di- the dial, right? We want to make sure that we get as much information out there as possible. Maybe you could provide some advice for me because I host this radio show each and every weekday and I often open up the phone lines and I get calls from people who are either vaccine hesitant or they're opposed to the lockdown or they think that COVID is not the kind of threat that it has been presented to us from health officials. And I'm, you know, and I'm not Daniel Dale of CNN. I can't, uh, you know, fact check the way that he does. He used to do with uh, with Trump. I can't do it quite that fast live. So how do you, how do we deal with that? You talk about people who, you know, not going to be able to convince everybody. But how do how do I handle that as as I um, encounter that kind of information that I might not be able to debunk immediately? Well, first of all, you, you, you can't change the mind of the hardcore deniers, right? And I actually think, Alan, that that is still, you know, despite everything, you know, that we hear, it's still a relatively small, small sector of society. You know, those really hardcore conspiracy theorists. And, and the problem is their message is, is creating this doubt for the movable middle. We'll call it, call it that, right? And, and so what you want to do, uh, research tells us, pretty straightforward. You provide credible information from trustworthy sources and really, you really want those sources that are aggregating the science in a responsible manner. So do that. I know that sounds ridiculously simple. Number two, this is important. Highlight the, the rhetorical tricks that are used to push the misinformation. So that's just an anecdote. They're just relying on a testimonial. That, they're misrepresenting risk. That is a conspiracy theory. Combine those two things with, uh, you know, a creative communication strategy. And I know you do this. <laughs> we, we did it already. We had Blinded by Science on. You know, get across some kind of creative, um, use some kind of creative medium. So it's a narrative, uh, you know, humor. And you combine those elements and you can, you can make a difference. And I may not feel like it, you know, in the moment, but long term it matters. Yeah, I, I'm always struck by the false equivalencies, obviously, uh, often used by by those that are opposed to, for example, the lockdown. I had a very uh, spirited conversation with a now former conservative MPP who has been booted from the party, who is arguing against uh, lockdowns, and Robin Baber argued that, well, we have all of this uh, negative impact on mental health and on you know, economic health, and it's like, well, that doesn't, like that doesn't mean we shouldn't reduce contacts by having a lockdown. So uh, this false equivalency argument is often difficult to try and counter. It is, and it's a very appealing argument, right? And often plays to sort of ideological positions. And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. You know, there's really interesting research that that, that suggests if you can develop an argument that, that plays to someone's intuitive leanings, you're more likely to be successful. No surprise, it plays to our other cognitive biases like confirmation bias, but, but things like false equivalency or false balance is another really good example where, and we definitely saw that with the Great Barrington Declaration. You know, this is the, that declaration that came out and suggested that 
that we should uh, just let the vaccine, the the pandemic rage, and you know that natural immunity was the way to go. And it was presented often as if that there was one side of the scientific community saying this, and the other side of the community community saying lockdown, which isn't the case at all. That was a fringe position, right? But that that kind of false balance, and there's actually research to back this up, can have a big impact on public perception and something else that we need to avoid. All right. How do people get involved? Those of us who uh, love science, maybe didn't do all that well in high school and decided to go into journalism instead of a science field instead, <laughs> but nevertheless uh, believe that facts and science should come first. Can we a little Thomas Dolby? Hit me with a little more Thomas Dolby there. Yes! How do we make sure, Tim, that we are all blinded by science? Easy. You go to Science Up First, either on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Science Up First. Hashtag Science Up First. That's all you need to do. Go there and and follow, and that will allow you to get the good content that then you can amplify. It's like a waterfall thing. And by the way, when that song came out, I had a flock of seagull haircut, so I'll leave you with that image. Oh, I, I'm, you know what? I'm working my way back to that flock of seagulls haircut because I can't get a haircut anymore. Tim, great to have you on the program. Thanks again. Thank you. That is Tim Caulfield, Canada Research Chair in Health, Law, and Policy, Professor at U of A, uh, broadcaster, and also one of the people behind Science Up First. Get behind it. Get out there and get on social media and be part of the solution. Get that information out there. Make sure that if you are retweeting something, if you are amplifying something, be certain that it is from a credible source, that it is a real source, that it is echoing what we are hearing from the experts. And and I love there what Tim was saying about this this sense of balance that it was like, well, there's, you know, there's, there's, why don't you report on the doctors on both sides? Well, there's, yeah, there's doctors on both sides, but there's a whole lot of all the credible doctors over here and one or two fringe ones on the other side. And so we cannot give balance, equal balance, to those fringe sides. You just can't do that. It's dangerous. And so we have to represent what the majority opinion is and what we know that the science is telling us. And what's the science telling us? The science is telling us to stay home and to stay safe. That's the podcast for today. Don't forget the Alan Carter Show weekday starting at noon.